Welcome to The How of Business with your host, Henry Lopez, the podcast that helps you start, run, and grow your small business. And now, here is your host. Welcome to this episode of The How of Business. This is Henry Lopez, and my guest today is Tyler King. Tyler, welcome to the show. Thanks, Henry. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. We're going to chat about Tyler. Uh, He's going to share with us his interesting journey to entrepreneurship, chat about that. And then specifically, we're going to talk about his approach and philosophies and how he bootstrapped the launch and growth of his software business. You want to receive more information about the Howa business, including links to this show, the show notes page, and to schedule a free coaching consultation with me, just text the word biz, B-I-Z, to 772-837-5700. So Tyler King is the co-founder and CEO of Less Annoying CRM, a bootstrapped SaaS, which is software as a service company that helps small businesses succeed. He majored in computer science at university, uh, had a successful career in IT and a side gig as a guitar player in a heavy metal band, which is very interesting. But at that time, had no aspirations of starting his own business back then based on the research I did. But the impact of surviving a layoff in 2008 got him thinking about starting his own business. And in 2009, he founded what is now Less Annoying CRM with his brother Bracken King. Tyler is also the host of his own podcast called Startup to Last Podcast. I've listened to that show. Great show. He lives in St. Louis, Missouri. So once again, Tyler King, welcome to the show. Hey, Henry. Good to be here. Absolutely. And a quick thanks to Ethan Janey, who connected us. You were on Ethan's show, Run With It. And that's how I came to know about Tyler and get connected. So thanks, Ethan. Um, Mm -hmm. All right, we'll dive into it. So I'm always interested in the journey. As I mentioned briefly in the bio, uh, I'd like you to share at a very high level the the brief story of what led you to launching Less Annoying CRM, especially that, that point that I highlighted in getting laid off, you know, I got laid off twice in my corporate career. It took me two times to kind of wake up to, I knew that I wanted to be my own boss, but I didn't have the wherewithal or the, the you know, the knowledge of how to do it. It sounds like you didn't even have that as a thought until that happened. Is that true? Yeah, that's correct. And I, I was lucky enough that I was not laid off, but almost everyone else at the company was. And that was definitely right. one of the, you know, kind of formative moments of my life. So tell so, me about that. What, yeah, was, it, what I, was it that happened that, that leads you to think, wait a second, maybe <laughs> I'm doing this wrong. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I love entrepreneurs who have that story. Like when I was a kid, I had a lemonade stand type of thing and I just didn't have anything like that. But I was working at a startup. I, I, would, I wasn't interested in being an entrepreneur, but I was a programmer and startups have a lot of good jobs for programmers. So I was working at one. And then, yeah, in 2008, you know, a lot of people were getting laid off at a lot of companies. And the company I was at basically laid off everyone who was, everyone except the five cheapest people at the company, basically, because <laughs> they couldn't make payroll otherwise. And, you know, very rarely is it good to be the lowest paid person at the company, but that one time it worked out for me. Um, and ba- so the CEO laid himself off. There were no bosses, nothing like that. So the next day I showed up to work and me and my friend Rick, who's actually the other co-host on my podcast, we were like, well, I guess we're in charge now because all of our bosses got fired. Uh, and so for the next year, I just kind of, without meaning to, played the role of a co-founder. It wasn't my company. I had no official title or no official power, but there wasn't anyone there to say no. And so I just realized during that year how much I enjoyed entrepreneurship. Hmm. 
I mean, that's a crazy situation. So who, who was making the big decisions at this organization? It was kind of weird. Uh, there was a, so the company had raised venture capital. And so there was a board of directors. The uh, investors were still there. So for example, regularly, like one of, one of the reasons I wanted to start my own company is all the time we'd go to the board of directors and be like, we've got this great idea. Can we go do it? And they'd say no. And I was kind of like, I don't even know any of you. Like, who are you? Why are you making decisions for this company? Uh, but they, you know, there were decision makers. I just didn't really understand who or why they were involved. <laughs> I see. Okay, interesting. So, why is it though that you? What do you? Why do you think you never had the desire to be your own boss? Otherwise, was was that just not modeled for you in your life, or it just wasn't something that you needed? You think? Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest. I was just kind of disinterested in my career in general. I see. Like it's it's not that I wanted to do something else. I just I don't think I really thought about it to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so this situation happens. You're getting increasingly frustrated. You realize, oh, wait a second, I'm, I'm making decisions. Somebody else is maybe going to get wealthy off of this. So how does that lead to the idea for the business and, and partnering with your brother? Yeah, so the idea was actually second. So first, I, my brother Brack and I said, this seems cool. Let's go do it. Let's start a company. And technically, our company's name is actually Less Annoying Software, not Less Annoying CRM, because when we started, we had no, no idea what we were going to do, um, which probably I wouldn't advise. Like Normally, it's better <laughs> to start with a problem and go from there. But uh, we knew we wanted to make some kind of software that would just take something complex and make it simple and easy to use. And then when we were bouncing around ideas, something I kept coming back to is that at that previous startup I was talking about, but before the layoffs, two things happened. One, they put me in charge of setting up Salesforce, which is kind of the main CRM out there for people mm -hmm. who aren't familiar. Uh, and I have a degree in computer science. I'm pretty tech savvy. I could not figure it out. I spent a month on it and it failed. I, I didn't get it set up. Like we paid for it, but I never, we, we weren't using it because I couldn't figure it out. Wow. Um, that was pretty eye-opening for me. And I was kind of like, what does a company do? What does like a dentist office do? Or, you know, some company that doesn't even have me, like a, someone who's good with technology, how do they set up a CRM? And then the second thing is, we, th that business worked with a lot of health insurance agents. We didn't sell to them. We, they were sort of like resellers of ours. And I built a little tool for them to help them manage the leads that they were referring to us. And they loved this tool that I built. Hmm. And it wasn't exactly a CRM, but I kind of combined those two things together. And I was like, I guess there's a market for this kind of really simple small business CRM out there. Mm -hmm. So that tool that you, you were doing that on the side of this tool that you built for them? It was, uh, it was not on the side, like it, it was owned by the company that I was working for, okay. but it was sort of a tool that I built to help us with our partner relationships with I the see. health insurance agents. Okay. So then, so that gives you the idea that this whole area of CRM, you either have to be a large organization that can use the complexity of something like Salesforce or you felt there was a gap in the market for something simpler that's easy to use and easy to implement. Yeah, that's exactly right. The, the stats at the time said about 50% of CRMs that people paid for didn't get used, which is the, exactly what happened when I tried to set up Salesforce. Mm -hmm. So the, basically what we were going after was not let's make something with more features or some unique kind of capability, but just what if we made something people could actually use? Yeah. So you started this as you still kept this job that you had. Uh, I think your brother was in or is still in Boston at the time. You were in the Bay Area mm -hmm. at the time. Is that right? 
Yeah, the, the startup was in uh, Utah. I moved oh, Utah. to the Bay Area and went down to 20 hours a week with them. So I was I was sort of still working for them, but while at yeah. the same time starting Less Knowing Sierra. Which was a unique situation that you were able to take advantage of because at least you had that income and some level of safety net if you would while you were coding on the side for this for this new tool that you were developing. Yeah, it's it was really, I got very, very lucky there because uh, I quit not expecting to have that income stream. I quit and then they came back to me and were like, well, what if you only worked 20 hours a week? Okay. And I was like, oh, okay, I can do that. So it really uh, worked out well for me there. So you were ready to quit. That means you must have had yourself in a financial position to make this transition, knowing you were going to have some ramp up time or you just weren't thinking it through? Uh, yeah, I was 24 years old at the time. So <laughs> almost everything about the formation of the company, you could say I wasn't thinking it through. Uh, <laughs> I, I knew I was going to do some kind of consulting or freelancing or something to pay the bills. I figured I'd just move to San Francisco and figure it out. It was very nice that I didn't have to go uh, pursue, like, you know, if you're a consultant, some of your time is spent on billable hours and some of it's spent going and getting the work. The fact that I didn't have to go get the work was, was really yeah. nice. Yeah, that's huge. Okay, you talk a lot about you were in that, the Bay Area, but of course, you had a philosophy, it sounds like from early on, that you were not going to seek any kind of vein, venture or angel investors, any other kind of third-party investors, right? That was a decision you made early on, is that correct? That's correct, yeah. I, I said almost everything was I wasn't thinking about it. This was really the one thing my brother and I knew is, uh, you know, Raising money for investors works for some people, but we knew it wasn't what we wanted. Why? A lot of it was informed by my experience at that previous company where I, I, we kept wanting to do stuff. The people actually working at the company wanted to do things. And I don't think I had this language at the time, but now I understand what happened is that our interests were misaligned with the investors. Mm -hmm. And investors' interests are going to be in a very simple way to make as much return on their investment as they can. But there are actually more constraints that are worth understanding, for, specifically with venture capital, where they have a business model. And it's not just any way to make money works for them. They need to make money in a pretty specific way. And that just did not align with how I wanted to run a business. And I'm, I'm happy to dive into more specifics there, but that was kind of broad strokes. Yeah, because we'll we come back that to that way. because I suspect that's a part of where your, your philosophy about not selling a company is also tied to that, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, the the biggest thing venture capitalists have to do is they need an exit, which means either getting acquired or going public. There's no other way for venture capital to work. And that's just not something I'm interested in. Right. Okay. So is it because of that in part that you thought, well, why am I in Silicon Valley or the Bay Area? <laughs> and you had grown up in St. Louis. So is that why you moved back to St. Louis in part? Yes, exactly. It, it really, the, um, the, the moment in time that we made that decision was it was time to start hiring people. I liked living in San Francisco, but when you want to hire someone, you think, well, every startup in the world is in San Francisco. There's all this talent, but they all, there's only one way to run a company there. It's the venture capital, you know, you, the Facebook, Twitter, Airbnb, Uber type of playbook. And it was really hard to get people on board with what we were doing because it was so different from the Silicon Valley model. So when we needed to hire people, we started looking around. And I'm not going to say St. Louis is the only city that could have possibly served our needs, but we wanted a kind of Midwestern vibe, like mm -hmm. customer service is a thing that people take pride in here and a really big talent pool. So a good university system and other you know, companies that you can kind of hire from. Mm -hmm. 
Because often that talent uh, in the Bay Area is looking for that same thing. What is your exit strategy? How can I cash in on an IPO here when you do that? And you tell them, well, we're not doing that anytime soon. That's a disconnect often. Is that that part of the challenge? Oh, yeah, it was a complete joke. You know, I, I again, I was in my 20s. I was young. So I'd like go out to a bar and talk, be talking to people and they worked at startups. And they'd be like, well, yeah, when are you raising money and what's your exit strategy? Those yeah. are the two questions. And I'd say, well, neither of those apply. And they'd be like, well, you're not a startup. You're not even a business. You're not a business if you don't have those. And I'm like, we're making money. That's, isn't that the point? Yeah. <laughs> but they don't right. see it that way. That's right. So you won uh, this thing called the Arch, if I'm, pronoun I'm pronouncing it right, I think Arch Grant, which is a mm -hmm. less annoying CRM, won the Arch Grant for a global startup competition. I'm assuming it's a local or regional thing there. Uh, what I'm interested in is why do you think you won that? Yeah, so it's it's a kind of local startup contest here in St. Louis. And there are, they kind of give these grants out to a handful of companies every year. Um, I think we were at the right place at that moment in time, which was we were growing pretty quickly, had a lot of traction to show, but we weren't there yet. Um, we we were in a position, an arch grant is basically $50,000, but it's not an investment. It's just no strings attached. Here's the money. Mm -hmm. And we were at the right size where that mattered. Um, so I think at the, if we applied right now, they'd be like, well, who cares? You know, you, you don't need the $50,000. Let's give it to someone better. But I think it was a combination of traction and we had just moved to St. Louis and I think attracted a really compelling team. And so we were basically saying, we're going to be a company that St. Louis is going to feel proud of. Uh, and we just need to ramp this thing up. And do you think that was key to winning it is the fact that they saw you were dedicated to the area, you were dedicated to it longer term, that that's what you think was a key component to you winning it? I think so, yeah. And uh, um, Arch Grants is great. Other cities have similar things where, you know, every city wants to be a startup hub or whatever you want to call it. Um, I do think there's a lot of value in trying to be a good kind of citizen in the community. and. Yeah, people are going to certainly be more likely to support what you're doing if you also consider your impact on the community and stuff like that. So I think being a part of St. Louis was a big part of winning that award. Yes. Yeah. All right. You also most recently were awarded best place to work in St. Louis for young professionals. Why do you think that's the case? Um, yeah, I don't know how how specific you want to get here. It, I mean, broad strokes they survey employees and decide where are people the happiest to work. And I'm very flattered that apparently our employees are happy to work at Less Annoying CRM. Um, we're a very small company still, but I think it honestly comes down to treating, uh, trying to serve employees the same way every entrepreneur tries to serve customers. Um, every entrepreneur, this is one of the hardest things, but if, if you run a business, whatever kind of business it is, you figure out, I'm going to figure out a way to make my customers happy, to provide value to them, Everyone does it differently. But if you take that same energy and apply it to employees and just say, what do they want? What, what do they want? What are their problems? We're just going to like iterate and fix stuff as problems arise. Um, that was kind of our approach. And apparently it led to a culture where people are pretty happy. So I feel good about that. I was hoping you might be able to share one or two tactical examples. I mean, when I think yeah. of that, I think of Silicon Valley where they try to do that by letting you bring your dog and having the ping pong table <laughs> you know, and all those kind of things. Right. Uh, or having food, free food. Uh, you know, Google does that famously. I have a, a friend whose son works for Google and they feed them breakfast, lunch, and dinner if they want to. So are there some examples of things that you've implemented that have helped to foster this environment? 
Yeah, um, I've got two examples specifically. And uh, everything you just said is, I think, exactly right. We tried to kind of go swim upstream a little bit and not make it so much about whether or not we have a foosball table. Um, one thing that we do that people think is just absolutely crazy but has gone well for us is we separated raises from performance. Um, this sounds nuts, but basically we say you need to hit a minimum level of performance to continue working here. Obviously, like if someone's not doing their job, they can't work here. But beyond that, that has nothing to do with raises, uh, performance bonuses, anything like that. Everybody has a guaranteed $10,000 a year raise up to a certain point, and it doesn't matter what kind of work you're doing. This, what this did is it allowed us to hire people who um, just really take pride in their work and want to do a good job, but don't particularly like all of the games you have to play at a lot of companies um, related to performance reviews and stuff like that. So that was one thing that was a little unusual that's gone well so far. Another one I'll mention is we have 20% time, which actually Google invented this, but then they stopped doing it. And that is uh, one day per week, employees can work on a different project. So the main people this helps is customer service. Customer service is a pretty repetitive job and it's easy to burn out on it, I think. But with this one day a week, people can say, oh, I wanna, I'm going to be on the marketing team for that one day a week, or I'm going to learn how to code, or I'm going to do HR. I think that's a weird thing to choose, but someone actually chose to go HR with their 20% time. So it just kind of gives everyone an opportunity to continue growing and learning beyond just the description of their job. Mm -hmm. well, I love it. So going, going back to the raises were um, separate from performance, does that has that resulted on the positive side in a more of a teamwork environment? Because as you alluded to, you don't have the individual trying to navigate ahead politically. Is that what it's part of what it's resulted in? Yeah, absolutely. Um, again, we're small, so I'm not sure how what kind of politics we would have anyway, but yeah, it allows people to just say, like, there are a lot of people out there who are great individual contributors and kind of lousy managers. But at a lot of companies, the only way to get promoted is to become a manager. And what this results in is people being bad at their jobs, whereas they were good at their old ones, and being unhappy in them. It's just kind of bad for everybody. So I think it gives every employee permission to say, just find the thing that you enjoy doing where you can really contribute value. Don't worry about you know, is this the management track or something like that? Because everyone's getting paid the same raises regardless. I see. I see what you're saying. So uh, obviously, I understand now you, you didn't philosophically want to take the any kind of outside funding, venture funding, whatever you might want to call it. So that means you self-funded this. You didn't get any loans. It was just from yours and Bracken's savings. Uh, how did you get started financially? Yeah, um, it was from our savings and really from the cash flow we were making because we were both working other jobs on the side. I mm -hmm. should say all of the objections I'm going to say about investors uh, do not apply to loans. I think loans can be fine. Software companies can't get loans. And the reason is there's no collateral. Like we're not taking the money and buying a building or equipment or anything like that. It's Software doesn't physically exist. So I've, we tried. Banks will not give loans to software companies. But in now that, I'm just curious, now that you have an established track record and you have recurring revenues, uh, you still find it hard to find lending or you haven't needed to? We, we haven't needed to recently, but we tried to get a line of credit from a bank maybe when we were around a million dollars in revenue. Mm -hmm. They did not value recurring revenue 
in a way that I think they should. Like they, they, they care about contracted revenue. So like, do we have a contract with a customer, which we don't, we, we have no contracts. So even though it was recurring, they didn't count it because there was no contract behind Interesting. it. Interesting. Yeah. Because you, you do a month to month, essentially, there is yeah. no commitment beyond my month's payment. Right. And you know, you could, we can say, well, look, we have years of history showing that our churn rate is good, but the, the banks don't really, they're not used to dealing with like a recurring revenue business like that, I guess. All right, so let's talk about how some of the advantages and disadvantages. From an advantage perspective, certainly what I what I have heard is that because you have to be so much more disciplined, you don't have this huge round that somebody just gave you, and then you end up spending where you don't need to spend. Has that been part of the, or was part of the benefit initially, that, that discipline that you have to then have fiscally with the money that you do have? Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, like you say, it's an advantage and a disadvantage. Obviously having more money allows you to do more things. So uh, that's a disadvantage, but something I think people don't appreciate enough is just running a business can be very, very complex or very simple. Um, if you have a, you know, you go raise millions of dollars from investors, you're now basically doing the job of a CFO. It's hard to manage that amount of money. If you just say, well, how much money did we make this month? That's how much money we can spend. Yeah, it limits you in a lot of ways, but it actually dramatically simplifies things. It, uh, our business finances, even at $3 million in revenue, which is what we're at right now, they're not more complicated than a typical person's individual finances. It's the exact same thing. How much money am I making each month? That's how much I can spend. Early on, though, how did that affect you or impact being able to plan for growth when you were dependent on the the profits to reinvest did it complicate being able to plan all right we're gonna you know put this project together and it has a six month life and I need this kind of a budget you know you understand what I'm asking how did it impact yeah. that ability it definitely hurts um, that that is a challenge I wouldn't say we necessarily thought about it the way you just described although we like we probably should have but we kind of just said we're gonna make do with what we've got. And as soon as we have enough money to hire someone, we're going to hire someone. Mm -hmm. um, for the first maybe six years, we were just always right on the edge of profitability where we were technically profitable. But as soon as we made enough money to hire someone, we did. So it was less about what are our goals? Who do we need to hire to fit those goals? And it was more about who do we have? What can we achieve with those people? So... So are you profitable now to the point where you're paying yourself a salary plus there's profit coming to you to sustain both yours and your brother's lifestyle? Yeah. Yeah. We're, um, I would say less profitable than you could be with a $3 million a year business. Um, I'm making, I'd say good upper middle class lifestyle kind of earnings, but, um, very, very comfortable, low stress job. Um, it's, it's kind of exactly what I want, but yes, it's not, uh, Elon Musk type money going on here. Yeah, no, I understand. But but that's what worked for you. And it just seems like from day one, it, even though you may not have been able to articulate it as clearly back then, it's what you wanted. Yeah. And I, uh, it's what I should have wanted. I think one of the mistakes I made is I didn't think about this in the early days. I just thought I'm going to have it all. I thought we're going to you know, have a calm work environment. We're not going to raise money for investors, but we're still going to be a billion dollar company because I, I was in San Francisco and that's sure. all I saw around me. But looking back on it, I never really wanted that, but I thought I did. So when did that adjustment happen? When, when, when did you kind of adjust that, that vision for, for the business? Yeah, th there was kind of a moment of truth where in the early days of a business, 
I don't want to say it's easy to grow really fast, but you know, if you have a hundred dollars in revenue, going to two hundred isn't that big of a leap. And you can be like, oh, we doubled, amazing. Um, and you can look at that trajectory and be like, well, if we just keep doubling, it'll get really, really big. Every company eventually comes down to earth, and like the growth rate slows down. Mm-hmm. That happened for us, yeah, probably around a million dollars in revenue, where we we're still growing. We are still growing now, but it wasn't doubling year over year type of growth. And we had a marketing person at the time who basically said, you know, it's my job for us to get customers. The business model doesn't let me. We're not charging enough money. We're providing too much customer service, which hurts our margins. We haven't raised money from investors, so I don't have much of a budget. He basically said, like, we can't be on a trajectory for a billion-dollar company given the constraints you've imposed. Mm -hmm. And so that was the moment we, like, reality set in, and I kind of had to say, well, either we're going to change our values here or we're going to just accept them and say, okay, we're not going to grow as fast. And we went with that second option. Yeah. You realized this is the company I want to have and I want to grow. And this is the pace at which I want to grow. This is what works for you and your brother. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. This is Henry Lopez with a brief break in this episode to share a special offer from our show sponsor, LinkedIn Jobs. 2021 is looking up. New beginnings mean new opportunities to grow your business. And if part of your strategy is adding new members to your team, LinkedIn Jobs finds the right person quickly. To make things even better, your first job post is free. LinkedIn is an active community of professionals with more than 722 million members worldwide. And getting started with LinkedIn Jobs is easier than ever. I really appreciate the new features to help you find qualified candidates quickly. You can post a job with targeted screening questions to help you quickly get your role in front of more qualified candidates. And you can do all of this from your mobile device no matter where the day takes you. That's how LinkedIn Jobs can help you hire the right person faster. When your business is ready to make that next hire, find the right person with LinkedIn Jobs. And now you can post a job for free just visit linkedin.com slash how. Again, that's linkedin.com slash H-O-W to post a job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, so uh, just to kind of walk through a little bit the, the launch, which again, uh, you launched a product beginning in 2010. The initial solution was your first version of a CRM though. Is that what it was? Mm-hmm. And even calling it a CRM is generous. It was basically a contact list and you could okay. enter notes about the contacts. <laughs> I see. I see. Did you, I'm curious, you know, when I work with, and I, I have a failed uh, software launch <laughs> in my history of businesses and I have got, I've got a client right now, actually as a coaching client who's developing a software solution. What I always recommend and try to take is the MVP approach, right? The minimally viable product approach where you, you release the absolute minimum, get that feedback from those initial customers and then iterate. Mm-hmm. Did you take a approach like that in developing this solution? Yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, I sometimes look back at the early mock-ups and, and screenshots from the early version and it was definitely minimum, uh, <laughs> debatable whether it was viable, but <laughs> yeah, it was, you know, we launched very, very quickly. I think only uh, two or three months after we started working on it. And yeah, it was, it was terrible at first, but a few people found it useful and started using it. And then if you look at our growth curve, really the first year, we didn't get any meaningful traction, but that during that time we were making the product better and better and better. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm kind of of the opinion, the sooner you get it out there, the sooner you get feedback from customers telling you what's wrong with it. So if we'd stayed in our room working on it more, 
and not put out that, that minimum viable product, we probably would have built the wrong thing, I bet. So a bunch of questions there. First, if you would have had a bunch of money, do you think you might have rolled out a bigger version one that would have not necessarily been any better? Yeah, I, that, that's a great point. I, yes, and companies do this all the time where they, they raise $30 million and then they, th that's almost like permission, like that's validation for them. So they don't need to go get validation from the customer and that's I never see. good. Right, that's a good point. I haven't thought about it that way. You came though from a corporate development environment where you know I was a developer as well back back in the eighties. I was a COBOL <laughs> coder, and so in that environment, you don't release until it's perfect, kind of thing. How did you have that mentality though to understand we can't take that approach? That's a good question. Um, I think side projects. I, I think I'll, I got some experience from like. At work, I learned how to be a professional developer, but I really, really value the fact that I was always going home at night and working on, like, I was really into fantasy football at the time. So my brother and I built this pretty, actually pretty sophisticated fantasy football site. And that did two things. One is it gave me experience with the startup thing without actually taking the risk. And two, I knew I worked well with my brother. So I think it's a really good way to test out co-founders as well uh, to work on side projects like that. Yeah. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, can you think back to when you were when you were first iterating here, 2010, 2011? Uh, can you think of a of a good way that you measured that feedback on what were customers responding to? Obviously, it wasn't maybe a lot of them, but how did you go about measuring that that you think was effective to get that right feedback on saying, got to drop this, got to add this, got to enhance this other section? I'm, this is a great question, but I'm, I'm maybe going to give an unsatisfactory answer, which is like, I'm just not that rigorous of a person. Um, I love the idea of being very data-driven and, you know, kind of quantifying everything, but A, I don't think that comes naturally to me. And B, when you don't have much data to work with, I think you can maybe draw the, the wrong conclusions if you pay too much attention to it. Right, so because the really, sample set is just too small and you yeah. got to be careful with that as well. Exactly. And I, I, this is all post hoc rationalization. The reality is I wasn't thinking about it. I was talking to customers and then, but using my intuition to say, you know, I've heard this thing two or three times, but I don't agree with it. I'm not going to do it. Versus this other thing I heard two or three times, that that feels right to me. So I, I think people sometimes use data to like abdicate their own responsibility to have a vision for their business. And I, I think you need both. No, I think that answer is brilliant because you touch on what I think it takes to be an entrepreneur, which is that we take that input, but then we have to make, and ideally maybe with your partner, I'm going to ignore this as noise and I'm going to go this way. And yeah. that's what it takes, doesn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Brilliant. Uh, so you, you continue to grow as you've articulated, you know, slowly, but measure growth. Uh, you talk about in another episode, another episode of a podcast I listened to, I can't remember which one where you, and you mentioned at the outset, you hired someone even before you decided to hire yourself or your brother on. That, that's a decision that, <laughs> that's not easy to make. Uh, tell me about making that decision. Yeah, this gets back to what you asked earlier about what, what are the downsides to bootstrapping? And one of them is you just, you don't have enough money. And so you have to make hard decisions like this. So we got to a point where we had enough money for either my brother or I to go full-time. And we were having that conversation, which one of us should it be? And then we just thought, well, let's, you know, let's consider all possibilities. Do either of us have to go full-time? What else could we do with the money? Mm -hmm. And it occurred to us, we were both putting in decent hours. Like, yes, we were working other jobs, but 
you know, in the early days, we, we were young, we were happy to just kind of work really long hours. But like, what impact would it have if we just hired someone? And so ultimately, we decided to do that with the logic being, we're both technical people. And we, we both make the product better, my brother and I. Um, the more time we have to do that, the, the more leverage we get on growing the business. So if we can hire someone to take the customer service side off our plate, arguably that actually gives us more time to spend on product development than it would for us to not be working our other jobs on the side. And so that's what we decided to do. Yeah. And, then, and so help me again, at what, how many years into it do you finally start saying, okay, we're going to start paying ourselves a, a salary and start taking some profits, not reinvesting everything? Mm -hmm. what, around what time did that start to happen? Yeah, I think it was uh, something like three or four years in. And you can kind of almost think of it as if we had raised money, we would have started there. So like the consequence of bootstrapping was we had three or four years of ramp up before it was a real company. Um, and even at that point, you know, we weren't paying ourselves a lot. It was definitely less than I was making when I had a full-time gig, but it was enough that, uh, you know, there's this term runway that startups use, which is the idea is how, how much time do you have to build up speed before taking off? The longer the runway is, the more time you have. We had an infinite runway at that point. And that's really what was key to me is just not having this like date where if we're not profitable by this point, we're dead. Okay. And you had that infinite runway in part because you hadn't put the pressure on the business to have to support a certain lifestyle for you or your brother at that point. Is that fair? Yeah, correct. Okay. And, and the part of the reason I get at this is I think, Tyler, and you tell me if I'm wrong, that the, one of the challenges that small business owners have when they bootstrap is deciding when is it enough? When, when, it, when are you out of runway, right? Or mm -hmm. do you spend the next 10 years putting it all back into the business? What do you say to people about that? What is your advice on that? Yeah, I think it's probably very personal. Some people, you know, have kids and a mortgage and they really can't make the decision that I made to live off relatively low income for a long time. But my general thing would be, the question is more about the trajectory you're on than the actual point on the trajectory. If you're, if the numbers get better, even if it's very, very slow, it's just a patience game at that point and you'll get there. But if you put in a year and nothing got better, I would be pretty discouraged by that, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Fair enough. Okay. You have this philosophy that we've touched on already of you should look to run companies for life versus selling. My challenge with that is my recommendation is always that you build the company as if you're going to sell it, even if you're not planning to. I think we might be saying the same thing, but, but tell me your thoughts on that. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. Uh, I listened to, I forget who the guest was, but one of your podcasts uh, from recently that uh, they were talking about this, like how, how to build to, to sell your company. I think that's exactly right that set aside selling it. Um, we, the, the language we use at Lessening CRM is the uh, hit by a bus language. It's a bit morbid, but if any individual person at the company gets hit by a bus, the company needs to continue functioning. Um, I'm not sure this has to be true at a one-person company. Like, the, you know, it's okay that some companies fail. But as soon as we started hiring people and these people's livelihoods depended on us, we kind of thought it's, it's our obligation to make sure that this company can survive us. And I think the same things that go into the hit-by-a-bus scenario, it's the exact same thing as uh, the you-want-to-sell-to-someone-else scenario. It's can the company run without you? Okay, well said. 
And you've got in place and you've built a company such that if you change your mind or your brother decide he wants out or something happens to you, there's a plan in place for the company to hopefully survive and prosper beyond that. Yeah. Yeah. And the bigger we get, the more we feel that responsibility. So it is, it's a work in progress. And what I, you know, when I was listening to some of your episodes, I, I do think I'm probably behind where I should be on this, but I don't disagree that it's important. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Why the focus on customer service? Why is that so important to you? It was a total accident, to be honest. Um, again, I wasn't thinking about anything because I was a stupid 24 year old. Uh, I just, I was making the website. I made a contact page because websites are supposed to have contact pages. I put a phone number on it because contact pages are supposed to have phone numbers. <laughs> it was my phone number. And then like a couple months later when we actually launched, uh, my phone rang. And I, listen, I'm an introvert. I'm a programmer. I'm not the type of person who's supposed to be talking to customers. But I picked up the phone and I was nervous and bumbling and awkward. I felt like I was doing a bad job. The person on the other end was like, oh my I can't believe someone picked up. You picked up the first time I called. He asked me a couple of questions. I answered. He was like, whoa, you actually know the answers to my questions. <laughs> Unbelievable. I've tried every CRM company and no one even picks up. And I kind of realized it just hit me in the face. Like, this is, an, this is an opportunity. Like, every other company is giving terrible customer service. And it's that easy. Like, I'm bad at it. And I still blew this person away. It would just be stupid not to pursue this opportunity. Yeah. I mean, in part, it's, it's, I think it's part of your differentiator, right? Mm -hmm. It's the number one, like at this point, now it's the most important part of our culture. Most tech companies, the programmers drive culture at our company, the customer service team does. It is our number one def differentiator. When our customers leave us reviews, the number one thing that comes up is, is the customer service. But again, it wasn't part of the strategy originally. It's just when opportunity presents itself, you kind of got to grab it. Yeah, as an entrepreneur does. And of course, as you mentioned, it ties back to why it's such a, a popular place to work, such a great place to work, is I, I have found that when when you're serving people well, that's what employees really, it creates a positive environment all around, right? Mm -hmm. When customers are happy, employees are happy and vice versa. And I think that's why it's all synergistic for you in your environment. Yeah. Yeah. The term servant leadership, uh, I didn't know at the time, but the more I learn about it, the more it resonates with me. Yeah. Here's right quick, just to go back. I remember the question I was going to ask you about this environment where you pay raises independent of performance. It must mean then that you have an environment where the bad players get weeded out pretty quickly. Yeah, I hope so. Well, when you say bad players, you mean the people who don't perform well? People or who, who, don't, don't, like... who, don't, who don't fit. Maybe they fit for a period of time, but something happened. They no longer fit. They're not, no longer doing their part. They're no longer a team player. What I have found is I suspect in your culture, they get called out by the rest <laughs> of the team. Mm -hmm. Yes, um, I certainly hope so. Now, we've only ever had to fire one person before, but one of our kind of keys to recruiting is a lot of the people we've recruited have been interns first. And that uh, different companies do this differently. Some do, you know, first we'll hire you as a contractor or a freelancer. There's different ways, but by being able to evaluate people, we've actually hired 50 people and we only have 19 employees. Um, because they were, those 50 people were interns, we were able to pick uh, and choose who really fits the culture. Yeah. Great approach. Great approach. Because I, that ties to my philosophy is that no matter how well you do the screening, the interviewing, you don't know how someone's going to perform until they're in the position for some period of time. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. I want to talk to last point here. I want to talk a little bit more about your partnership with your brother. 
you're doing two difficult things. I, I prefer to partner, but you're partnering with a family member, which I've also done. People will tell you never do that. Why does it work between you and your brother as partners? Uh, yeah, first of all, I mentioned earlier, we'd already worked together. I would be much more hesitant to do this if it was, well, I know this person, but I haven't actually worked with them. And we knew we were compatible. The things I like to do, he doesn't and vice versa. But the number one biggest thing is that greed is not something that either of us feel naturally. And I think a lot of the problems that could occur would be about a power struggle or who's making the most money or something. I mean, we split it 50-50, but there have been situations that could have been problematic where both of us were happy to just say, eh, whatever, it's not a big deal. Um, I, but yes, I, I think it's risky. So I, I don't want to say like, oh, it's the best thing in the world. Go, go start a business with your family. But if the circumstances are right, it's amazing. You know, it's, it's, you get to spend so much more time with people you love and it's a great thing. And you, so you knew because you're his brother that he's not a greedy person. He knew that about you. Um, but you're, you're 50, 50 in ownership. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So there's a slight nuance here. We're 50, 50 financially. I technically have the tie breaking vote. Okay. It has never come to that. We've never needed to actually, you know, have a board meeting and vote on anything. But, um, if we did, I, I can overrule, uh, certain decisions. Yeah. Which is important because you don't want it to come to a stalemate and that can kill a business. Yeah. But it's interesting that you've never had to do that. So what is your all's process? I'm curious for making those decisions where you might disagree. Um, yeah, I should start by saying this is made a little bit easier by the fact that I don't think he particularly wants to be the CEO or anything like that. So he uh, has, he has allowed, he allows and is okay with you being in that role. Yeah. Yeah. We, um, even though we're very compatible and aligned, I mean, he has, kids and does, you know, wants to spend as much time with his family as possible. And I'm much more career. Like we both love the business, but kind of in different ways. So he's happy to say, I'll come in and do my job, but like for, to have me, Tyler do a lot of the CEO kind of having hard conversations with people and making the risky decisions and stuff like that. I always bounce things off of him, but I don't think he feels particularly like he needs to be the primary decision maker. I see. Okay, one last question, and then we'll move on. Is there anything when you look back at those early days in 2010, 2011, that you would do differently now? Yeah, I kind of referenced this earlier, but to dive in, I think I didn't do enough of like figuring out what I actually wanted. We kind of started the business, and then from there, that determined so many things about my life. And luckily, it all worked out, and I'm very happy. But I didn't, there were a lot of things I made that I didn't think, a lot of decisions I made that I didn't think about at the time, how it would impact my personal life. So for example, um, by making customer service a priority, great decision, I'm happy we did it, but I didn't appreciate, well, that means we're gonna have to hire a lot more people. Like a, a pure tech company can run very, very lean, but you can't scale good customer service without hiring people. And so the, the team's a lot bigger than it would be otherwise. And similarly, Moving to St. Louis, we just got an office for the first time we were fully remote before that. I didn't put together, oh, this means I'm a nine to five employee for the rest of my life, probably. Um, so I just wish I had been a little more deliberate about that. Again, not because I'm unhappy with anything, but it could have gone really wrong, I think. Right. But thank goodness that the speed at which you were moving allowed you to adjust and uh, evolve with it and make those decisions. In other words, it didn't get away from you if you had gone a different route, like mm -hmm. venture capital that would have required you to move a lot faster. Is that fair? 
That's a fantastic point. I've, I've said to people before, if we'd raised venture capital, I would not be the CEO. Yeah. Because when you're growing slowly, you have time to learn what you need to know. But when it's a rocket ship, you just have to bring in someone who already knows it. And I didn't already know it. So yeah, that would have, that would have been the end of me as CEO if we'd raised money. I understand. Okay, we've obviously been touching on it, but, but give me the, the pitch, the high-level overview of what you offer today, what, what the product does and, and how you serve your customers. Yeah, so uh, for anyone who hasn't used a CRM, it stands for Customer Relationship Manager, and it's just every business needs a database of their customer information so they can make sure they're uh, following up with people and all that. If I'm being totally honest, every CRM does the same thing. Um, I know that doesn't sound very fun, but like, it's, it's just a database to put information into. What we focus on is making it actually something you'll want to use. It's just simple. It's easy to use. It doesn't have all these bells and whistles. And the core thing is most CRMs are built for really, really big companies. And what a really big company needs is they want to put together an assembly line. Everything's automated. Everything's impersonal. Small businesses don't need the assembly line and actually don't want the assembly line. And so you can strip out all those complex features. And that's what we are is just kind of the basic CRM core stuff. And then your pricing model is for small business owners. Yes, it's $15 per user per month. And there's no plans, there's no contracts, there's no extra charges. That's the price for everybody. And then I, I've enjoyed listening to your podcast, which is Startup to Last. I can find that everywhere I listen to podcasts. Is that correct? Absolutely. And thanks for saying that. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a great, great show. Who's your, your co-host? I can't remember his name now. Yeah, so he's Rick. And actually, for anyone who's listened to this, the interesting history there is Rick is the other person who was with me at my old startup after the layoffs. So right. he handled the sales and marketing. I handled the product. And we kind of got the business back to profitability. Wonderful. All right. I'm always looking for a book recommendation, Tyler. Is there a book that comes to mind that you would recommend? Yes. My favorite uh, book is called The Mom Test. Have you heard of this one? I have not. The Mom Test. The Mom Test. It's kind of a weird name, but the premise is um, if you ask your mom if, you, if she thinks your startup idea is good, she'll always say yes because she loves you. <laughs> um, so you can't get good feedback if you ask the wrong questions. And so the book is all about how do you talk to people? Like humans don't want to say the truth to you for fear of hurting your feelings. How do you get the truth out of them by asking the right questions? And for someone like me, who's an introvert and not naturally like socially gifted like that, I learned a lot about sales, idea validation, customer interviews, all that. Love it. Great recommendation is as you were saying, and I was like, I got to read it and I got to recommend it to this client that I referred to <laughs> who's developing a software solution, because that's, that's such a challenge, you know, going back to what we talked about, how do you get that feedback? How do you ask the right questions? Because we tend to ask questions Either we ask them of the wrong person because they're going to tell them what, what they're going to tell us what we think they think we want to hear, or we lead with how we ask the question to mm -hmm. kind of get what we want, right? Yeah, like my my favorite one takeaway from the book is if you say like, "Would you buy this?" People are yeah. going to say yes. If instead yes. you say, "When's the last time you tried to buy something like this?" They're going to be like, "Well, I've never tried to," and you're like, "Okay, well, you're not a customer." Like, Great example. Great <laughs> totally example. different question. Yeah, brilliant. All right. What's one thing, Tyler, you want us to take about uh, us away from this conversation about taking this approach of bootstrapping a small business? Yeah. So obviously I, I love bootstrapping, but the takeaway is not that everyone should bootstrap. The takeaway is I didn't question, and so many people don't question how businesses can run to fit their founders in, in the very, very early days. And so whether it's bootstrapping or raising money or whatever, I, I guess the takeaway I'd say is just figure out what you want and don't let other people's goals become your goals. Mm -hmm. 
Brilliant. And where do you want us to go online to learn more? Uh, lessannoyingcrm.com if you think you uh, might be in the market. Absolutely. We'll have a link to that in the show notes page for this episode in case you didn't catch that or you don't have a chance to write it down. You can go to the how to, howabusiness.com and find it there as well. Tyler, great conversation. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for being with me today. I'm glad we got connected and had a chance to chat. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Henry. This was a lot of fun. This is Henry Lopez, and thanks for joining me on this episode of The How of Business. My guest today again was Tyler King. We release new episodes every Monday morning, and you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at our website, thehowofbusiness.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to The How of Business. For more information about our coaching programs, online courses, show notes pages, links, and other resources, please visit thehowofbusiness.com.